Let's get into the message today. We have been studying the seven churches in the first three chapters of the book of Revelation. We're calling this series a spiritual diagnosis because that's basically what Jesus is doing. Have you ever been to the doctor for a checkup? Most of you have. The doctor examines you from head to toe, puts the stethoscope on you, listens to you breathe. They take your blood and they give you the results. Well, here's what we know. Jesus, the great physician, wink, wink, answer number one. That's the biggest hint you get, kids, number one. Jesus himself, the great physician, diagnosed the seven churches that we are studying. As a very quick review, we know that Revelation, that title in the original meaning is apocalypsis, which simply means unveiling. It doesn't mean gloom, doom, and despair at the end of time. It simply means unveiling. Jesus is unveiling to us some things. In the first section of the Revelation, uh, we see this spiritual diagnosis to the seven churches in Asia Minor. And we also see Jesus use a pattern. He uses a pattern, much like a doctor uses a pattern to diagnose you and I. They, Jesus uses a pattern. He starts off with a commendation. This is what you're doing great. This is what you're doing awesome. He goes to the rebuke. He rebukes them. You need to change this. Then he goes to the exhortation. He basically gives them words of encouragement on how to change. And then finally, he gives them a promise if they change. He also gives promises if they don't change, these consequences will happen. We serve a consequential God. There's consequences because he loves us so much. The first book, I'm sorry, the first letter John wrote out of this revelation to his, was to his hometown church in Ephesus. Here's the rebuke. You ready? Jesus rebuked the Ephesians for not loving people as God loves people. We see that the scripture says they left their first love. And that first love is the deep kind of love that God has for people. Let that sink in. Second church that John wrote to is the church in Smyrna. In Jesus' spiritual diagnosis to John at the church of Smyrna, he knew that Smyrna was a suffering church. So he started by connecting with them with their suffering. He says in verse 9 of chapter 2, I know your affliction and poverty, and yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Jesus praised that church for their faithfulness in their suffering. He was so pleased. He had a rebuke here. And the rebuke Jesus had for this church was notable. There was none. There was no rebuke for the church at Smyrna. And this is significant. We can only imagine that their persecution and poverty was so severe that their faith had been refined so much that their lives were pure. The exhortation to the church in Smyrna was simply, don't be afraid about what you're about to suffer. And so we began asking the question, why do the godly suffer? Why do we suffer? Why did the church at Smyrna suffer? And we looked at the scripture and we brought out three points. First off, Hebrews 12, 2 tells us sometimes we suffer for disciplinary purposes. The second reason we suffer on occasion is preventative. 2 Corinthians 12, 7 teaches us that. And finally, the third reason we suffer is the learning of obedience, as Hebrews 5, 8 and Romans 5, 3 through 5 tells us. The promise given to the church of Smyrna was this, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. If Jesus were to diagnose your suffering, would you truly be suffering? 
or simply complaining because life wasn't easy. This church helped us have perspective. Well, today our destination is, drumroll, Pergamum. We're studying Pergamum. So number three up on our map here, you see how Patmos is in the black center dot there. That's where John received the revelation. You move a little northeast, you get to the first church, Ephesus, go a little further north, you get the Smyrna. And today we're going to the northernmost point to a town called Pergamum. P-E-R-G-A-M-O-U-M or Pergamos, P-E-R-G-A-M-O-S. Now, Pergamos was located about 50 miles north of Smyrna and about 15 to 20 miles inland from the sea. It could be accessed through land, or there was a river called the Caiacus, my best interpretation there, and you could also actually take a small vessel and get to the river through there. The religious temperature of the church in Pergamos was good, but the religious atmosphere, like if you had to See if Pergamus had a fever or not. Oh, they were at 104. They were bad off. You see, the Greeks built temples to Zeus. Yes, Zeus. They built temples to Athena, Dionysius, and Asclerius. When the Romans came in and began to rule, they actually, last week we learned that they started this thing called an imperial cult. That means we have to worship the emperor. That'd be kind of like us going to a president and burning incense to him out of worship. Word, right? Well, we know that the first temple dedicated to imperial worship was actually built in Pergamos in 29 BC. You have to think, no wonder Christ used the term the seat of Satan for this town. There was so much idol worship, so much satanic influence that Satan, you ready for this? He felt comfortable there. So, History tells us, kids, wink, wink. History tells us that this city was also known for the arts. The arts. They had a fine library. Well, check this out. This is amazing. With over 200,000 volumes. 200,000 volumes. To give you perspective, I asked mom, who was a, she retired from uh, the Northeast Library a couple years ago, how many books does Northeast Library have? She said we have about 60 to 65,000. Wow, modern-day America. But back in the day, 200,000 volumes. That's significant. Uh, it's also, just for fun, the first place where parchment was used. That was kind of neat to know in my study. But the thing I want you to see is that they had a beautiful theater. Check this picture out. You can actually go here today. You can sit there. The theater started with the Greeks, and it continued to evolve through the Roman reign. The picture here, you, you can literally go sit there in northern Turkey. The theater, this can seat about 10,000 people. These folks were all about some arts. You know what's interesting, and this is an incredible history lesson for us today. When you study the history of the theater, it started off with the simple play, plays and simple uh, muse, acting, just for enjoyment. But over time, the theater, which began like that, morally deteriorated to perversity, distasteful acting, slandering, and even became a sounding board to lash out against politicians. Does that sound familiar, United States of America? 
It's a history lesson that we can learn from today. It's bad enough when entertainment portrays the poor choices of immorality in our culture, but it's really bad when entertainment persuades a culture to become immoral. Hello, United States of America. Do we see history repeating itself today? Think about this. A couple of decades ago, there was this agenda that started being shoved through the pipeline of media called the LGBTQ agenda. The minority, the teeny tiny, itsy bitsy percentage of Americans who believed in the LGBTQ movement decided they wanted to voice themselves. And so what did they do? They go to the media mountain, they influence it, and the media mountain began to show the fact that there are people who believe in this lifestyle. But then what happened? You give it a decade, all of a sudden media is influencing a culture who would be neutral otherwise to make these choices. It's bad enough when entertainment portrays the poor choices of immorality in a culture, but it's really bad when entertainment persuades a culture to become immoral. You know, the, the thing that we need to learn about the LGBT community and just any other, any other sin, let's not, let's not weigh sins out here, sin is sin, is the principle that God teaches us. Unconditional love, conditional acceptance. God loves unconditionally, but he cannot accept everybody into heaven. And so what does that teach us? That teaches us to love unconditionally. We don't accept the sin, but we love the person. We accept the person, right? Now, again, let's not just preach about folks who choose to disassociate themselves from their true identity in Christ. We have to deal with our sins, every other sin in the book. The point I want you to see is in the time of Pergamum and today history is repeating. It, it's with the arts. It's, it's powerful. But let's drill down deeper. The spiritual environment of the theater was simply an example of the spiritual environment and climate of the entire society. It's just a great example to show you the society. Everywhere Christians went, they were staring in the face of immorality. So what did they do? Kids, are you about ready? I'm about to give you another clue. What did the Christians at Pergamum do? They became holy. Do you know what it means to be holy? Holy means to be different. Holy means to be different. The church at Pergamum had to be different than the non-believers in the city. They made different choices of lifestyles, which we'll talk about more later. All right, let's get into the spiritual diagnosis that Jesus himself gave to the church at Pergamum, found in Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. Here we go. Write to the angel of the church in Pergamum, the one who has the sharp, double-edged sword, says, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. And you are holding on to my name and did not deny your faith in me. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan lives. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to place a stumbling block in front of the Israelites, to eat meat sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. 
In the same way, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. Otherwise, I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Anyone who has an ear should listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. I will give the victor some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone, and on that stone a new name is inscribed that no one knows except the one who receives it. Like the church in Smyrna, Jesus' greeting sets the tone for the letter. You know, in Smyrna it was like, you know, I'm the first and the last, the one who was dead and is now alive. But to the church at Pergamum, he says, I am the one who has the sharp double-edged sword. He's setting us up here for what's about to come. I remember one time um, Morgan was in residency at Spartanburg Regional putting in her 100 to 120 hours a week. She was on a surgery rotation and uh, I think it was an open heart surgery. And I remember asking you one time, I was like, hey, what did they use to, you know, cut them open? And I was thinking some, you know, highly elite medical tool. And she said, it's just like a saw. I'm like, a saw? Yeah, like a saw. I mean, like, a saw? And she said, yeah, it's a saw. You know, the saw, that sharp double-edged saw is meant to divide so you can get in there and you can get the healing done, right? Jesus has a double-edged sword that pierces. If you remember the scripture, I believe it's in Hebrews 12 or Hebrews 2, it says, for the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any double-edged sword, piercing to the what? division of the spirit and the soul and the joints and the marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. When we think about the sword of the Lord, the, the, the sharp double-edged sword, we're talking about the word of God, Jesus speaking, God speaking into us and bringing division, sometimes to divide sin from godliness and simply sometimes to bring judgment because we as believers won't separate sin from godliness. Let's look at the commendation. Remember, we're talking about spiritual diagnosis here. The commendation is found in verse 13. Jesus said to the church, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is, and you are holding on to my name and did not deny your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan lives. Now, like the church in Smyrna, Jesus is also giving compassion and connection to the people who were there in Pergamon because they were suffering for him. Even in the days of Antipas. Now, this is significant. There's so, so much in the study of this name. You know, I mentioned earlier that Christians in Pergamon had to live holy. They had to live different lifestyles. Well, apparently, that difference in lifestyles became an issue over time that led non-believers to despise the believers. It came to a head when Antipas was martyred. At his death, a time of persecution was triggered. Passive persecution, like, why do they got to be so like that? Why don't you believe? Why don't you accept everybody? You know, all that stuff. It became from passive to blatant, active persecution. Not only do I not like you, but I'm taking action against you, right? You know, consider your life. Have you ever been made fun of or looked at differently because you wouldn't participate in what everybody else was doing because it was against your convictions, 
Maybe it was against the Word of God. I remember one time I was, I was in K-5. My parents, I don't remember, but my parents tell this story. When I was in K-5, you know, I grew up in church here, over there in the Rock Building. And uh, apparently as a five-year-old, my theology of Halloween wasn't exactly what it is today. And so uh, I go to school, apparently, and I start hearing about Halloween's coming. And so I, I begin telling other kids, if they go trick-or-treating, they're going to hell. <laughs> And word spreads to the teacher. Teacher tells the principal. My parents get called to Henniger, and they have the talk. I don't know what it was about. You know, I was just five. I, I didn't know that. But I promise you this, I scared the Halloween out of some kids. All right. So anyways, uh, the point is, I was different. And kids didn't like it. But you know what? Henniger Junior High didn't have a Halloween that year. Just saying. All right, so let's talk about this guy in the Bible named Antipas. This is the only time his name was used, yet Jesus used his name. That should tell us when you make a stand for Christ, God will not be ashamed to use your name. Amen? Come on, that's encouraging. He knows your name. Now let's look at Antipas' name. Let's break it down into its meaning. Antipas. A-N-T-I equals against. Pus, P-A-S, equals all. The God's name literally meant against all. Now, according to early church historians, and those are people who lived probably around 200, 300 after the death of Christ, they don't contribute literature to the canonized Bible, you know, Genesis through Revelation. They have outside, they call it pseudoepigrapha or non-canonical books of the Bible, basically historians whom we lean on, right, for dates of the Bible, blah, blah, blah. They say this is what happened. Antipas was casting out a demon. And the pagan leaders felt a disturbance in the force. Now, they felt a disturbance in the spirit realm. And they knew that they couldn't tackle this on their own. They couldn't win. So they go to the leaders and they say, hey, this man's causing issues, blah, blah, blah. He probably slandered him. And so Antipas was brought before the leader, the, the judge. Antipas was told, deny your faith or you're going to die. Antipas did not deny his faith. As a matter of fact, Jesus uses the word, this witness of mine, the faithful one. And because we have kids in here, I won't tell you how he was martyred, but it was grotesque. It was terrible. The, the point I want you to get is this. Jesus said, even in the days of Antipas, and, and then he went on to say, um, oh, where's that? He talked about how the martyrdom was done in public. This man who stood for his faith would not bend, would not bow, was martyred publicly. So the Christians saw this. That would usually strike fear in the heart of a person. The non-believers saw it as well. And that empowered them to go persecute Christians more. Jesus commended the church by saying, even in the days of Antipas, you didn't deny your faith. He was so proud of them. Now with that in mind, remember this. When Christians are born again, we have to separate from the sinful ways that we used to partake in, that we used to do, right? It's kind of like Brother Randy says, if you used to be an alcoholic, you meet Jesus, 
don't go to the bar for the peanuts. You know what I mean? You're going you're to stumble. And so you have to separate yourself there. And you have to be wise. So when the citizens of Pergamum became Christians, they had to change their lifestyles. Christians couldn't go to that beautiful theater anymore because of the depravity there. They refused to go to athletic events because there was nudity there. They wouldn't go to the bathhouses because there was deviant activities taking place there. They avoided the pagan temples and would not burn incense to the emperor. To the unbeliever in the day, Christians seemed to be against all. They seemed to be like Antipas, against all. That disturbed the unbelievers. Could you just imagine what, you know, if you were friends, you don't know Jesus, but I know Jesus, or you know Jesus, I don't know Jesus. All of a sudden, you know, our routines, we used to go to the bathhouse together, and, hey, check her out, you know, stuff like that. Now it's more like, I can't go do that anymore. And, and, and the, the one who's an unbeliever, why not? It's just a bathhouse. You know, it's not like you don't see anything like that before. I can't do that anymore. You would be separated from your friends because of the choices you would make, right? The believers would probably be tempted to compromise just a little. Oh, come on, man. I'll, I'll blah, 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 blah. You know, I'll help you. I'll walk with you, whatever. And the believers just wouldn't. They were holy. They were different. And God was pleased with them for that. Because they were holy and different, there was such persecution happening. And as bad as that was, there was actually something even worse brewing in the ashes. And this is where Jesus brings his rebuke in verse 14. But I have a few things against you, Jesus says. You have some who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to place a stumbling block in front of the Israelites, to eat meat sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. In the same way, you have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Hey, kids, you ready? You remember the story of the talking donkey in the Bible? Well, we're talking about Balaam. Now, the doctrine of Balaam, let's go there for a few minutes. If you think back to your um, exodus where Moses is leading the children of Israel out, um, I believe it's around Numbers 22, 23, and 24, you read the story of Balaam. And here's my summary of it. So the Israelites get let go from Egypt. God does the plagues. God separates the Red Sea. God drowns an entire Egyptian army. When stuff like that happens, word travels. Just like today, you know, a miracle takes place, word travels. Well, if you're not an Israelite, you're scared stiff because, oh dear Lord, these people have a divine power working on their behalf. And so as they begin to travel, word gets to this uh, clan leader named Balak. Balak hears of the miracles and the divination of the divine who is on the side of the Egyptians. And so Balak goes and finds this guy named Balaam. Jewish historians tell us Balaam wasn't necessarily a godly prophet, but he was more of a diviner. But Balaam agrees to go for compensation to a mountaintop to curse, curse through the spirit realm, the children of Israel. He agrees. And so Balak and Balaam are going up the mountain. Balaam sees the children of Israel, he begins to speak his divination, but God takes over and Balaam just, he only speaks blessings 
And Balak, the king who hired this guy, is like, what are you doing? I ask you to come and curse them. And so I believe it was three times that happened. And Balaam finally said, listen, I can't control this. Sorry, bud. But here's what you can do. If you really want to defeat them, all you have to do is to lure them in using sexual immorality Make a stake, you know, go sacrifice it to your idol first, but then make a stake. Lure them into eating meat sacrificed to idols. Begin to introduce them to your daughters. Begin to intermingle so that way they will begin to worship your gods. And so what happened? The teaching of Balaam was obeyed by Balak and the children of Israel who were set apart who were different, who were holy, began to compromise a little. And it cost them a lot. In the church at Pergamum, there were some, thankfully only a few, who were introducing the teaching of Balaam by saying, just compromise a little. You know, when, when you go do these sinful behaviors, just don't tell nobody, keep it secret. The persecution's going to stop. You know, you, you might actually get to have a job again. You might get to have food. Just compromise a little. Jesus did not like that teaching. He says, I have. That means he personally owned some displeasure. He was personally disturbed about this false teaching that was happening. The leaders, a few leaders, thankfully, just a few, we're teaching that in order to get along with your neighbors, tone down your faith. That dark path would weaken the church. It was a spiritual virus. The teaching of Balaam was a spiritual virus. Over the past couple of years, we've all began to have a deeper understanding of virology, correct? The study of viruses. Thank you, no thank you, COVID-19, whatever. But the thing you know about a virus, it's so teeny tiny, itsy bitsy, you can't even see it. If it comes in through your eyes, through your nose, or through your mouth, it can, even just one little virus can get in, find a host cell to get on, begin to replicate, and to cause a sickness. Unless you have something like Lysol, that virus is just going to keep going. Have you ever looked at Lysol? It kills what percentage of viruses? 99.9%. That's not bad. I think they call that a one-law kill rate. But, uh, doc, but Dr. Mose, the, the thing the Lord has her working on, it can kill 99.999% when activated. And so it's really, that's just for fun. The point is this. It's super important. Oh, yeah, that's what I was going to say. It, a, a product can't be considered an antiviral unless it achieves such a 99.999 something status of being able to kill viruses because, you know, professionals know the teeny tiniest little virus that gets up in your body, even though it's just tiny, can wreak havoc. And we've all seen a lot of consequences of that lately. This spiritual virus, the teaching of compromise, it was teeny tiny itsy bitsy. It was just a small number, but just like a virus in the body. What starts very small, if you don't annihilate it, it can cause great sickness. Jesus 
had this against the church. In verse 15, he says this, In the same way, you also hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. The word Nicolaitans, that word means to conquer the laity. Do you know what laity means? People. To conquer the people. There's not a lot known about the Nicolaitans, but we can assume in how it's worded here that they were practicing and promoting this moral compromise. And the meaning of the name says it all. I got a question for you. You ready? If you're in the demons and Satan's planning room and you're like, hey, how do we conquer God's people? How do we conquer those people who have the light so bright that we can't stand it? How do we conquer the people who have the blood of Jesus upon them when we, we, we can't conquer them? How do we conquer them? One little demon to the background says, oh, that's easy. Just get them to compromise. Get them to compromise their purity and their holiness. Compromise is a spiritual virus and it is fatal. fatal. This is Christ's rebuke to the church at Pergamum. Let's look at the exhortation. Verse 16 says, Therefore, repent. It's that easy. Just change your behavior. Don't whine about it. Don't fuss about it. Don't complain about it. Don't throw his fit. Just change your behavior. Repent. I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth if I do not. Notice how he says, I will come to you quickly and fight against them. Christ had, if, if they didn't obey Christ was going to come and separate in the church. He wasn't even going to have to deal with the ungodly unbelievers. He's talking about the believers. Remember that sword, that double-edged sword divides. Mm, it brings judgment. Christ's obvious exhortation was to change their ways. If it, he would come quickly. That word means suddenly. He would come unexpectedly with the sword of his mouth. The promise, let's look at the promise. It's found in verse 17. Anyone who has an ear should listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. I will give the victor some of the hidden manna. I also will give him a white stone. And on the stone, a new name is inscribed that no one knows except the one who receives it. Just like every other promise in the Bible, this one can only be received for those who overcome for those who repent, for those who do away with compromise in their life. The promise was for hidden manna. The hidden manna is used here to remind the church at Pergamum that they don't need food sacrificed to idols. God will supply their needs just like God supplied manna for the children of Israel in the wilderness wanderings. The hidden manna could quite possibly, since it's unseen in the spiritual world, could be Jesus. We, we, we can hope that. The white stone with the new name, I studied a lot of sources for this. Nobody knows the answer, but here's a few thoughts on what the white stone could be. We'll just, we'll take them all, right? Yeah. Scholars aren't in agreement, but one commentary says the white stone with the new name could symbolize victory in ancient Greek athletics. Once a victor established such a reputation and won, they could retire permanently, which was great. That means there was no chance of them being dead. Uh, the second could be, it, it means an entrance to a community feast. Uh, a third thought could be a glory title. When you die and go to heaven, you get your own title. We, we don't know, but if God tells us he's got a promise for us, it's good, right? That's right. It's good. Um, here's what I, I want to ask us today is, as I bring this plane to land. 
If Jesus were to diagnose you today, would he find the spiritual virus of compromise inside of you? Is the teaching of Balaam something you like? Is there compromise in your integrity? Is there compromise in your morality? Is there compromise in your service to God? If there is, repent. Because when God brings his double-edged sword, nothing can stand against it. All right, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come to you today. And Lord, I just want to pray uh, just a prayer on behalf of all of us in this room. God, I repent on behalf of myself, my family, my church, for any and all compromise. Lord, we repent for allowing the, the media. We repent for allowing other people to bring compromise to us. Father, we've heard it said, if we give the devil an inch, he'll become our ruler. And Lord, we know it's true. So Father, we pray that there will be no foothold, no uh, grasp that moral uh, failures or sin will be allowed to touch us, your people. And Father, I just thank you for that. Thank you for the atoning blood of Jesus Christ that washes us clean. Oh, come on, church. Let's thank him for his blood. Thank you for your blood, Jesus. Thank you for the blood of Jesus that has been shed for us. Oh, all of our sins are washed away. All of our sins are washed away when we repent. Lord, we praise you for this. Here's what I'm going to have us do, church. For the next minute or two, I just, I just want us to be, be quiet. <laughs> and you pray. If you need to repent to God for some areas, do it. If you want help getting out of those areas and you're willing to step up, in just a few minutes, I'm going to ask some people to come to the front. You need to approach them. Remember this. If you're ashamed of Christ before men, there's consequences for that. But if you're bold and you're willing to get rid of this, if you're willing to confess your sins one to another, there's forgiveness. So let's be quiet for just a minute, all right? I want you to search your heart and pray. Listen, these altars are open. At any time, you need to get focused on God. Get down here.
Jesus. Make the darkness tremble inside of us. Oh, if we are the light, then let us be the light with no darkness. We repent for our compromise, God. We forget how good you are. But Lord, we remember you. Lord, forgive us for compromise. Forgive us for immorality. Forgive us for impurity. Forgive us for not being different. May we be holy. Hallelujah. Bless your name, Jesus. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, Jesus. Hallelujah, Jesus. Thank you, God. If the Lord's dealing with your heart about this, will you be so bold? Just let me see your hand. Because it ain't about me. It's about Him. Let me reword all that. If God's dealing with your heart about some areas of compromise, be bold. Lift your hand to Him. Be bold. Don't be ashamed. Yeah, yeah. Jesus, Jesus, we praise you. Thank you. Father, you see our hearts. You see our hands. We repent for compromise. We're in the world, but we're not of the world. You've called us to be holy as you are holy. So, Lord, make us holy. Make us holy. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Church, I, I want to just kind of bring this time to an end by us having a prayer of repentance. You know, in the Old Testament, they would have the Day of Atonement, that day once a year where the priests would go in and atone uh, through animal sacrifices for the blood. Well, today, I feel like the Lord wants us to do this. I want to ask you to pray with me. You know, I, I'll try to articulate a prayer the best I can to the Lord, but just repeat after me as we say this in unity. Are you ready to pray? Let's pray. Jesus, Jesus, forgive me for compromising. Forgive me for half-hearted devotion. Forgive me for failing to see your goodness. Forgive me for getting my eyes off of you. Today I declare. Come on, say it like you mean it. Today I declare. No more compromise. No more compromise. No more half-heartedness. Today I declare. I will stand on the rock of commitment. And I will not be moved. Holy Spirit, empower me to stay steady when the winds of compromise attack. I will be steady on the rock of Christ. Thank you that my past is gone. Thank you that my failures are below my feet. And I'm steady on the rock of Jesus. 
we praise you, Jesus. Come on, let's praise him. Praise you, Jesus. Thank you that you don't hold our failures against us. Thank you that you have called us to higher things. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Heavenly Father. No more compromise. Thank you, Abba Father. Praise the name. Praise the name. Praise the name of Jesus. Praise the name of Jesus. Let's learn our lessons well from these churches, church family. The lesson we learned from the church at Pergamos is let's not compromise. Even the smallest little compromise can lead to big darkness, big greatness, and a huge collapse.